Thank you all for being here. One of the uh, one of the hardest things about preaching is when you look at the long range forecast, and you start to think all this work is not going to like we're going to end up canceling. And I'm so like I got more like real real not hopeful at the start of the week, more in between in the middle. Even yesterday, wrapping this up, like as the snow was coming down, wondering if this was going to happen. But I'm thankful for you all being here today. Thankful for the deacons who shoveled this place. Everyone else that helped. Thankful to the city, really, for um, clearing the snow so well. I'm excited about this passage. Last week, we, we have been preaching for weeks now through the book of Acts. Last week, we preached through the story of the Jerusalem Council, and we learned that church councils can be a means of God's grace to us. Councils that love truth can help us become churches that love truth. People who love God's word and uh, and councils can actually keep us from heresy, which can divide the church. Okay, there's something else that has the potential to divide the church, and that's what we're going to look at today. And that something is conflict, specifically interpersonal conflict. Division in the church as a result of conflict. Conflict can divide a church. Sin can do that. Heresy can do that. But interpersonal conflict can end a ministry. You might have experienced that yourself. Some of you probably have stories to tell of interpersonal conflict ruining a ministry or even an entire church. Some of you probably like conflict. You're comfortable in that zone. Probably more of us try to avoid it. But today I'm not really talking about personality. I want to talk to you about something that I'm going to call conflict and the victory of God. So let's look at our text. Let's look at what a sharp conflict looked like in the early church and how they handled it. So in our story today, Paul and Barnabas, the apostles of the early church, have already completed their first missionary journey. And they have already gone through the Greco-Roman world, preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. This council in Acts 15 has met, and they have settled the issue of Gentile circumcision and whether that's essential for salvation. After this council is concluded, Paul is convinced that now is the time to backtrack through his first missionary path and see how everyone's doing. This is where we pick up our text in Acts 15.36. The text says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Spirit, as we move into this text Pray that you would move on our hearts as I speak. Pray that anything that's distracting or unhelpful, you would take away and that you would point us to the truth that's found here in your word and in so doing, point us to Jesus. 
I ask for that now. We ask for it together. Amen. Okay, so some context for what's going on here. This trip that Paul is, a, is proposing is about to become the second missionary journey of Paul. He's already gone on a first missionary journey, preaching and teaching the Word of God. He's been starting new churches. Now is maybe the year 49 or 50, 51 A.D. Paul's essentially ready to circle back on this journey. And Paul and Barnabas have been functioning as a team. They had put in years of amazing ministry together. And now Paul is saying, let's go back. Let's look and see how these fledgling churches are doing. Let's see how everyone that we met is getting along. He's been preaching, catalyzing these new works throughout the Greco-Roman world, and he says, let's go back. Let's see how they're doing. And I love that because I love that the idea to strengthen what already exists is coming from the mind of the apostolic missionary Paul. Because we, we have this tendency to see to think of these things as either or. So some of us get most excited about the expansion of the work, right? We always want to press the borders outside. We always want to do more, expand the mission, plant more churches. So we're the ones that say, let's grow, let's expand, let's push into new frontiers, let's extend what already exists. Then other people are more wired to get more excited about the consolidation or health of what already exists. So these are the people that say more like, let's grow tight as a community. Let's tend to the internal health of what already exists. It's not either or. It's, it's both and. Paul instigated these new works, and Paul is probably about as apostolic as it gets, but his intent was not to just start something and let them go figure out life by themselves. He says, let's go back. Let's visit everyone. Let's take the time to do that. And you know, nobody is going to be more excited about this work of encouraging souls and shepherding people than Barnabas. Barnabas is Paul's partner, and Barnabas is like Mr. Encouragement. What do we know about Barnabas? We know that Barnabas is probably the most encouraging person that you are ever going to find. In fact, in Acts 4, we know that his actual name is Joseph, but that everyone calls him Barnabas because Barnabas means the son of encouragement. Barnabas is the guy who 15 years ago vouched for Paul when the church leaders were suspicious of Paul's violent anti-Christian past. So in Acts chapter 9, when, Acts was, when Paul was trying to join up with the church at Jerusalem, it says, Well, they were all afraid of him because they didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took Paul and he brought him to the disciples and he declared to them on the road what Paul had seen, that Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus Paul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So before these church leaders, Barnabas put his neck on the line for them. And he did it for Paul and he said, the church. Trust me, this guy's good. He's good. Nobody's more encouraging than Paul. You might know people like this, that just you just know that they're in your corner. During the process of um, getting to know 
getting to know Clint and the Patronellas. Uh, Justin and I went down to, we're in Texas, and we were at the Village Church, and we met some of their, met some of their leaders there. And one of Clint's pastors came up to us, and he's like, I don't know what he is, like maybe early 50s, and he gave us this like Texas football hug and gave us a neck rub. And it was like, <laughs> I was like, what's going on? This doesn't happen. But he was, he was so excited about Seven Mile Road and what we were doing that I didn't, I almost didn't notice the like Texas football coach aspect of it. He was so encouraging to us. Some of us know these people that you just spend a few minutes with, with them and you know they're in your corner. That's what Barnabas is like. So when Paul says, let's return, let's visit the brothers where we proclaim the word of the Lord, let's see how they're doing, you know Barnabas is going to be on board with that work, with that visitation. So he says, great idea. Let's bring my cousin Mark. And what do we have now? Conflict. Big time. Big time conflict. Why? What's the problem with Mark? Why is Paul not keen on this idea of Mark coming along? Isn't Paul like always bringing a younger guy and discipling him so that he can, he can go off and work on his own? Let's look at what we're told about Mark. Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. We get introduced to Mark in Acts chapter 12. Mark's from Jerusalem. His mother's name is Mary. In Acts chapter 12... The apostle Peter is miraculously freed from jail. And in that scene, when he gets out of prison, he goes to Mary's house, where Mark lives. So Mark is an observer when the church was hiding from Roman officials and from persecutors of the church. He's very familiar with the wildness of the early church scene. And yet, even though he's been an observer of these early years surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection, at the back end of Acts chapter 12, Mark's still up for the task. Paul and Barnabas go on a missionary journey, and Mark goes with them. They bring Mark along to assist them. But very early in the journey, when Paul and Barnabas are in Cyprus, they have an intense encounter with a magician who opposed the apostles. And after that, Mark goes home. And our narrator of the story, Luke, who is writing Acts, he's very reserved. He doesn't comment anymore. He just says, Paul and Barnabas continued their journey, but Mark left and he returned to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why Mark left. We just know that it's safe to say his departure did not sit well with Paul. This might have been for Mark kind of like the mission trip gone bad. If you grew up in the church, you might have gone on a mission trip, right, in high school or in college. And you sign up for that, thinking, that thing thinking, oh, that'll be fun. I'll go to a new country. Maybe I'll make some friends. Maybe there will be a couple cute girls on the trip. Maybe we'll sing some songs or build a house or play with puppets. Or... I took a trip like that. Um, one summer growing up, I took a mission trip to Tijuana, Mexico. Tijuana, as you may know, is very close to the border of California. So to get there, we flew to San Diego, which is, of course, one of the most beautiful cities in the United States. Your image of Tijuana might be, a, be of kind of like a party town for California kids, and I know that it is that, but that wasn't the, where we went. We went to a place called El Refugio, or The Refuge, 
And on the way there, we drove from the first world in San Diego. 45 minutes right into the third world. I remember being shocked at, by just the sights of dead and dying dogs everywhere, the stench of human waste all over the place. The refuge that we were at was like a, uh, like a senior citizen's home for people who didn't have anything or anywhere to go. And there were times when I was just given a bucket and a rag and told to go clean bathrooms, and I would open doors up and just not even be able to believe what I was looking at. There were also times in that trip, there was also a time where I had the opportunity to uh, speak briefly to preach the gospel at a Mexican jail through a translator. And after I was done, there were a couple men who expressed their desire to, through a translator, of course, that they wanted to pray and receive Christ. And so like every time, when we step out in faith, in obedience to God, the Spirit works in power, and we're amazed by what we see. But when the week was over, we had some time to, before our flight back, to wander around a little bit, wander around San Diego. And if you ask me right then, Matt, do you want to come back and do it again? Only this time, not for like a week. But how about for three months or a year? You could really do some work here. I think that I would have looked out at the ocean in California and thought about the sights and the smells that I had encountered and said, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that again. It wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And this happens, right? We get into the thick of something. We get into the thick of ministry, and real bullets start flying, and we think, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. So we don't know exactly why Mark left, but we know it got dangerous, and we know that it's safe to say his departure bothered Paul. Mark abandoned them. So when Paul says, let's return and visit the churches, Barnabas is this encouraging, optimistic type of guy. He says, let's bring Mark. He's the kind of guy that would say, yeah, I know this last trip wasn't his brightest moment, but I believe in Mark. He's coming along. That's not how Paul looks at it. Paul's more of a realist. He's more like one of those guys in Southie that chews on a toothpick and says, in this town, nothing's more important than loyalty. He'd say, Mark broke the code. Barnabas would say, Mark's my cousin. I can vouch for him. And Paul would say, he's staying home. He knows the danger of the situation. They're going back to places they visited where they had seen some success and some opposition. Paul knows that the Jews oppose Paul's beliefs about Jesus and the gospel is going to be a threat to their religious way of life. That's not changing. And at the same time, the Gentiles oppose him too for different reasons. The gospel is going to be a threat to their economic way of life. Danger is in front of them. And when Paul and Barnabas return, it's not going to be as strangers. The pressure is going to be strong. 
So this question of whether or not to include Mark is not a theological issue, right? It's a question of whether Mark is going to persevere under pressure. And the text says that Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn already. In other words, Paul made a judgment call, and he fought over it. He didn't think it was best to bring this guy along. And I need you to see this clearly because the work of the church is made up of many judgment calls, right? Life is made up of many judgment calls. And here's what I mean by that. When I say judgment call, what I mean is a decision that is not explicitly or directly referred to in Scripture. Where Scripture does not directly refer to the situation. And what I mean by that is there is not a passage of Scripture that says when a young man goes on a missionary journey and he abandons the work, here is how he must prove himself to be faithful before you give him a second chance. Correct? There's nothing that, that applies that directly. Not everything is is in a judgment call category. For example, sometimes in issues of sexual chastity or generosity or honesty, people have come to me and told me that they are praying about their situation as though there is some subjective dynamic that they need, to, that they need guidance on. When in reality, their situation is addressed very specifically by Scripture. And prayer time should be over. It's a simple matter of obedience. Mark's case is not like that. In Mark's case, we make a judgment call. So when I say that, don't, me, don't hear me say that we are not led by Scripture or that Scripture is irrelevant and we just make up stuff the best, as best as we can. No, instead we have Scripture that teaches us about the qualifications of a leader. And then we have passages that also say things like encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak and be patient with them. And those passages are highlighting different principles. One is speaking to the intensity of leadership in the church. And another is speaking of God's amazing patience with weak people, with people who have failed. So what do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and say, ah, it doesn't matter, whatever. Do we give up? No, but here is what happens. Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn. In other words, it didn't seem prudent to him to take Mark along. And what's the result of this difference? The text tells us that there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, and he goes to Cyprus. But Paul picks another guy named Silas, and he departs, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In other words, the differences between these two brothers were so intense that they had to go their two separate ways. And we're prone to read that and think, that is terrible. Couldn't they have gotten on the same page? And then we think, why does there have to be conflict like this? Why does that always have to happen? These guys had known each other for years. They'd been so fruitful together. Shouldn't they have just found a way to compromise? They both owed each other so much. Barnabas is 
super patient with the failures of the weaker guy. He's the one saying, it's time for another chance. And Paul is still remembering Mark's failure. and is unwilling to bring Mark along. It's too much of a risk. Some of the most difficult decisions we ever make in ministry are these judgment calls. Where we say, I don't think this job is right for you. Or we say, you don't have the gifting for this work. Or we say to someone who is chomping at the bit, I know you think you're ready. I don't think you're ready. I've been on both sides of those conversations. It's hard to say. It's hard to hear. But in our case today, here's what I need you to say. Here's what I need you to see. You might not see it on the surface. This was not a bad solution. So how do we know that? Let's look a little bit further at what happened. We know Paul goes off with Silas. He takes the journey he intends to, but he doesn't do it with Barnabas. And ultimately, Barnabas goes off with Mark. So which one was right? Who made the right call? Well, Luke in the moment, keeps his mouth shut about that. He stays very objective here. He doesn't seem to take sides. He does note that when Paul left with Silas, he was commended by the brothers, so Mark did have the goodwill of the church when he left. But it doesn't read like Luke's agenda in writing. This is to say who is right and who is wrong. He's not trying to say that, Mark, that Paul was so tough or so mean that only like the all-star missionaries were good enough for him. Nor is he trying to tell us that Barnabas was so sentimental that he couldn't realize that Mark was a weakling and wasn't cut out for this missionary work. Instead, it's like we get the idea that two good, godly men could not agree, and it results in a break in their partnership. And we say, how sad. And isn't that the way it always is? Two big personalities and they have to go their own way? But no, instead... This passage should cause us to rejoice in the ultimate victory of God. The cause of God will triumph through all the weaknesses and failures of His people. And sometimes our judgment calls will not be perfect. But let's look at the testimony of Scripture beyond Acts 15. There are three takeaways. First, first is this. Sometime after Paul and Barnabas separate, In his first letter to the Corinthians, so this is some years later, Paul refers to Barnabas as a fellow brother and a worker with him. So if there was a rift, it was healed. And Paul and Barnabas shared life, they shared ministry together again. Not immediately, but there was unity. They had a different outlook on a judgment call, and it was sharp, but it did not keep them from personal reconciliation. Paul and Barnabas were united again. But secondly, what about Mark? He goes off with Barnabas to Cyprus, and really we don't hear about Mark or Barnabas for the rest of the book. We don't really hear about how that journey went. The rest of the book of Acts starts to really narrow in on Paul. But years later, nearing the end of Paul's life and ministry, in his letter to Timothy, Mark's name resurfaces. Maybe a decade later, 
Paul is in jail now, and he concludes this letter with some personal instructions. He's writing to Timothy. He knows that Timothy knows of his imprisonment, and he tells Timothy about one of his co-workers that's already abandoned Paul. Paul's alone by himself in a cell. So he's telling Timothy, do your best to come visit me. And then he says right at the back of the book, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in my ministry. I love that. Very useful to me in my ministry. What is the end game for Paul? For Mark. He's useful to Paul. And in the end, he's also useful to the whole church. He becomes connected with the Apostle Peter. And with Peter's help, Peter refers to Mark as his son in 1 Peter 5. And with Peter's help, probably eight or ten years after this dispute, Mark even writes a book. It's called The Gospel of Mark. Barnabas was willing to work with someone who was a failure. He was willing to bear with his weaker cousin. Paul had such seriousness about the missionary task that he wasn't willing to have Mark on his team for the second missionary journey. So it would seem like Paul, Paul was focused on the intensity of the task while Barnabas was focused on Mark's potential. So what was it that made Mark grow up? Was it Paul's intensity? Was it Barnabas' encouragement and patience? Well, couldn't it have been both? And ultimately, both those men were needed for their distinct tasks. They separated, but in the wisdom of God, the ministry was doubled. Both Mark and Silas developed significant ministries themselves. There's conflict in that judgment call, but it results in the doubling of ministry. And third, here's the third takeaway. Really the big picture here. God triumphs even through the failures of His people. What we see is that even when this conflict is not solved, neither man quits the ministry. As regrettable as potentially their sharp disagreement may have felt, they choose new partners. They go on with the ministry of the gospel. Two ministries emerge. And what we need to see here is what unifies us is the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for sinners, and the task that emerges from that, our responsibility to go and make disciples. So We can't read this text as an out for us to part ways with each other whenever we want. That is not what this is getting at. For example, if the church or the ministry leads in a direction that you don't prefer, that is not your permission to say, okay, I'm going home now. I can do that because Paul and Barnabas did it. Even they split up. That's not the takeaway. That's not this type of conflict. When uh, when James talks about conflict... In the book of James, he says, well, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war against each other? In, in other words, the root of most conflict is me. It's right here. It's I want, I want what I want. It's when my personal preference runs into yours. That's the root of most conflict. But that is not what's happening here. 
they're in conflict over a judgment call, but in their conflict, they remain committed to the actual work that they had been given to do. What we need to see here is that their missionary work is rooted in the words of the missionary Jesus. Jesus, after he stepped out of the tomb and before he ascended, he said this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Because we are sent by the risen and victorious Christ, that means we go in the authority and the, and the confidence of the ultimate victory in Christ. There is confidence there because we're sent in light of the victory of Jesus. So in the mission of the church, there might be conflict, and there might be personality differences, and there might be areas where we differ on the best way to approach the work. But here's what I'm saying. That is not the conflict of selfish personal preferences. Because we know that we are sent by God, and that His ultimate cause is assured, and we know that God works in conflict, that He is sovereign and good, We know that the defeat of God's people never lasts forever. It's always temporary. It's always short-term. Even I think about that even in this building, that the defeat of God's people is always temporary. God is always pulling something from the ashes of failure and writing His story always making more disciples, always doing more than we can ever know or think. So the call today is to be united and encouraged around the reality of our task and the beautiful truth that we go forward in the victory of Christ, knowing that all authority belongs to Him. And in that reality, we make disciples. That we can love each other and be holy through conflict. That there could be times when we differ. And yet, what unites us never changes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that this story is in Scripture. We thank You that You are always doing more than we know. That Your cause is going forward and triumphing. And that we can rest assured in the victory of Christ on our behalf and on behalf of the world, we pray that that would give us a great vigor and love for each other in the mission of God. I ask for that. pray that we would be united in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.